following resource is from Welford Baptist Church. All right, church, let's open our Bibles up to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, as we continue in our series, Kingdom Portraits. Matthew 13, we're going to start in verse 44 this morning. Well, the summer blockbuster season is officially upon us. I love a good action movie, don't you? Whether it's the latest in the Marvel franchise or some war epic, man, I am here for it. I'm looking forward to seeing the latest installment of Indiana Jones and Mission Impossible 567, Part 1, Section C, whatever's coming out this summer, all right? But those are movies that you know are going to be crowd pleasers. They might not do much to enrich your life, but you know you're in for a good time. But have you ever been pleasantly surprised by a movie that you thought was going to be a total sleeper, but ended up being pretty good? Like, you probably would have never picked it out to watch yourself, but you're kind of glad that you saw it. Well, I recently had this experience with a little film that I had zero interest in seeing, but I kept hearing buzz about it. It had gotten some good reviews. It had won some awards. So one night, when I couldn't find anything else to watch, I noticed it was on one of those streaming platforms, so I decided to give it a go. Now, don't judge me, all right? I'm a little embarrassed to admit what it was, but it was a little film called... Mrs. Harris goes to Paris. I know, I know. I'll turn in my man card after the service, all right? But it was actually a pretty charming, heartwarming little film, and it follows this dutiful, kind-hearted, aging cleaning lady in 1950s London whose husband went missing in action during World War II. But she keeps plodding on, believing that she will soon hear that he has been located and is coming home. But unfortunately, she receives the devastating news that he has, in fact, been killed in action. Nevertheless, she continues to press on, always optimistic, always cheery, though her clients often take her for granted treat her as insignificant, and even at times neglect to pay her, her presence is always of benefit to them. But one day she comes across a beautiful dress in one of her client's homes, and not just any dress. It is a haute couture dress, I think is how you say it, by designer Christian Dior. And she is enthralled by the dress and dreams of being able to wear something of such beauty. But aware of her own class and station in life, she knows that this is but a fanciful dream. Nevertheless, due to the strike of some good fortune, she wins some money. She finds out she will also be receiving a widow's pension. And she begins to take on some additional cleaning jobs and saving up some extra money. And she decides that she is going to seize the day and plan a trip to Paris to the house of Dior and use all the money she has to purchase her very own Dior gown. And while she faces many adversities in her pursuit to do so, particularly among the snobbish Parisian elite, her presence in the lives of the people she encounters there likewise works for their good, even when it's to her own detriment. But after many twists and turns and sacrificial losses, Mrs. Harris herself gets her own happy ending and brings the extravagance of Dior to the humble legion dance in working class London. Now listen, I have zero interest in fashion. I mean, clearly, okay? All right, but nevertheless, I found myself caught up in this story, not because of the fashion, but because of how the film showed that even amidst all the darkness and drudgery and desperation of the world, there's still goodness and beauty in it. 
that there's something more to life, something that transcends our day-to-day concerns and the seeming insignificance of our individual selves. And while I would not recommend blowing your entire life savings on a single article of clothing, in fact, please don't do that, but there are indeed some things in life worth giving away everything we own for. And that's the snapshot of the kingdom Jesus has for us in our parables today. Look at Matthew 13, 44. It says this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven, he says, is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Jesus here gives us two related and highly similar parables to provide further insight into the kingdom of heaven that he's ushering in. And remember why he is telling us these parables. These illustrations of the kingdom are simultaneously doing two things to any group that is listening to them. They are opening the eyes of and enlightening some, bringing them to the point of turning away from their sin and trusting in Jesus, of entering into his kingdom, even while they simultaneously further harden the hearts and dull the senses of others, handing them over to their desire for sin and the advancement of their own kingdom. And friends, that wasn't just true then. That's true right now. As we hear these parables today, there is something profoundly spiritual that is occurring. Indeed, as we saw in the parable of the sower, there is a spiritual battle going on where Satan sneaks, seeks to snatch away the seed of the gospel as, as it is proclaimed. So as we look into these parables, I invite you to open your heart this morning and ask God to open your eyes to see and receive the truth today. Because there are several things Jesus wants us to understand about his kingdom through these parables. And the first one is this. It is that the kingdom is often hidden. The kingdom is often hidden. As we saw last week with the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, in this present age, the kingdom is not always obvious. And that is because while it has begun, it has not yet been fully realized. This is what Jesus proclaims throughout the gospel of Matthew. He doesn't want us to mistake his kingdom for a temporal kingdom. And this would be where I would gently push back on those who advocate for a post-millennial understanding of Jesus' kingdom, thinking that God's kingdom will be fully realized this side of heaven. You know, in recent days, while that is a completely orthodox position to hold, in recent days, some have linked this concept with the notion of what is what is called Christian nationalism, which is dangerous on many fronts, most importantly because Jesus makes clear that his kingdom is not of this world. It's hard to read the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of the New Testament and think that the kingdom of God will advance through military conquests or man-made government. In fact, historically speaking, whenever the gospel of Jesus has been hijacked by politics, it has been catastrophic to the church and the advancement of the kingdom. Just look at the history of Europe from Constantine to Henry VIII and beyond. The embrace of Christianity by imperial powers may have allowed some Christian ideas to spread and for church buildings and structures to be established, but it was to the detriment of the proclamation of the gospel and led to the corruption of the church. Why? Because people can't be forced into saving faith. When you force someone to become a Christian, all you can do is force them to engage in outward 
Christian behavior. But as we've seen, Jesus isn't just concerned with outward behavior. He's looking at the heart. So when we have state-sponsored religion, all we're doing is promoting religious hypocrisy, calling people to pretend to be righteous. But Jesus wants us to actually be righteous. And that requires an earnest desire to turn from sin and call on him for salvation. That's why historically, as Baptists, we have been proponents of religious liberty. Not because we believe all religions are equal. No, Jesus is the only way. But it is because we want genuine converts to Christianity, not fake ones. So Jesus doesn't want us to get the wrong idea here as he talks about kingdom advancement. As he told Peter, man, put away that sword. That's not the way the kingdom is advancing. It won't come by force. Indeed, as one pastor aptly put it, whenever the church gets in bed with politics, the church gets pregnant and our offspring does not look like our father in heaven. No, the kingdom is always a grassroots movement. It always starts small. Friends, it starts with you, but then you tell two people, and then they tell two people, and then they tell two people, and all of a sudden, what started as that tiny mustard seed and that little bit of leaven is becoming all pervasive, expanding, and growing, and little by little, day by day, this is how the kingdom advances. Where we go, the kingdom goes. But most people are still blind to it. Just like the treasure in the first parable, what does it say? It says it is buried, it is hidden, so hidden that even the owner of the field is oblivious to the fact that he has great riches on his property. And in the same way, even as the kingdom is expanding, not everyone is going to recognize its glory in this present age. Not everyone knows its value. It just looks like an average property. Perhaps it's even a run-down, dilapidated property that no one in their right mind would buy. Oh, but just beneath the surface, millions of dollars are buried. So even if the property itself appears useless and worthless to get access to all that wealth, it would be worth purchasing. And that's the man and what he's doing in this parable. He is selling everything that he owns to get that property. Why? Because what's on that property is worth insurmountably more than anything he owns. But to those watching him do this, this would have seemed like utter foolishness. Bro, why are you selling your car and your furniture and your house and your clothes and your game console and your iPhone to buy that plot of land? This man must have seemed like a complete idiot. And that's precisely Jesus' point. The only reason that we know he's not a fool is because we have the inside scoop here. We know that he knows there's buried treasure. But those who don't have the eyes to see think he has lost his mind. And that's exactly how it works with the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is written, it says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Friends, when you live out the gospel... It's going to freak some people out. 
You will be misunderstood. Your friends and your family aren't going to get it because if they don't have the eyes to see, it's going to seem like folly. I mean, why would you deny yourself sexual pleasure? Why wouldn't you just go out and get wasted? Why wouldn't you be ruthless in the pursuit of what you want? Why wouldn't you retaliate when you're persecuted? Why wouldn't you hoard all your wealth for yourself? I mean, you only live once, so why wouldn't you live it up? What kind of fool would deny himself of whatever pleasure he can get? Listen, they don't understand because they don't have the eyes to see. That's why we should not look on the lost in disdain, but in pity. Friends, the lost are not our enemy. They're blind. They have a spiritual handicap. So beware of getting bogged down in the latest culture wars. Man, proclaim the truth of Christ absolutely. Call sin, sin. But listen, do it not in arrogance, but in love. Rather than pummeling them, pray for them. Rather than pontificating, proclaim good news. Because listen, playing the fool yourself isn't going to convince anyone that they're the fool. That's why the Apostle Paul says instead that we, since we know the fear of the Lord, he says, we should not fight others, but what? We should persuade others. In other words, we confront folly not with weapons, but with wisdom from God, asking him to open their eyes to what is true, because until he does that, it's all going to seem like foolishness to them. But oh, for those who believe, we see what is hidden to them. 1 Corinthians 1.21 says, It pleased God through the, in the, through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 1 Corinthians 2.15 says the spiritual person is able to judge all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has, who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But listen, we have the mind of Christ. So how do we know that there is treasure in the field? It's because we have the mind of Jesus Listen, left to ourselves, we would be just like everyone else, blind to the glory and the worth of the kingdom. But though we were blind, now we see, because we have been born again, not of flesh, but by the Spirit. And through Christ, our minds have been enlightened. Listen, to the world, it seems like folly. But Jesus told us earlier, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Listen, we know what has been hidden in the field, and we want it. We want it. Which leads to the second thing here. The kingdom is worth losing everything for. It is worth losing everything for. This is seen in both of these parables. The first parable shows the man giving up everything to gain the land with the treasure. In other words, he temporarily becomes poor in order to gain even greater riches. In the same way, the invitation into the kingdom might initially look like loss, 
but it leads to gain. Indeed, this is what Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Listen, the call away from earthly treasure here is not for our misery, it's for our flourishing. As one song puts it, when Jesus bids us come and die, it's only so that we might truly live. Friends, why would you settle for a lesser treasure when Jesus is calling you to a greater treasure? Listen, there is no true sacrifice in the kingdom of God. Not ultimately. Sure, it might feel like you've made a great sacrifice in the moment, but not when you stop and you actually think about it. It'd be like complaining that you had to give up a tricycle for a Ferrari or a lean-to for a mansion. That's why Jesus, when Jesus called the men who would ultimately become his 12 disciples, we see that without hesitation, they were willing to leave it all behind to follow Jesus. Matthew 4.20, it says, immediately, immediately they left their nets and followed him. 4.22 says, immediately, again, immediately, they left the boat and their father and they followed him. Matthew 9, 9, when Jesus goes and calls Matthew, who's a tax collector sitting at his tax collecting booth, he says to him, follow me. And what does it say? Without hesitation, Matthew rises and he follows him. All of them, all of them immediately leave everything to follow him. Why? Because they had been given eyes to see and they knew there was something greater in Jesus than anything else they had been seeking. See, when it comes to following Christ, nothing you leave behind will be greater than what lies ahead. And we see the same idea with the pearl of great price, but with one substantial difference. As commentator R.T. France explained, the man with the hidden treasure knew it was safe to lose it all because of what he was about to gain. He might lose all his resources for a moment, but he was about to have significant resources to live off of for the rest of his life. But not so with the merchant who desires the pearl. He sells all he has to purchase a single pearl, which is beautiful to behold, but leaves him otherwise impoverished because all of his resources are now tied up in that single object. Do you see what's happening here? Just like Mrs. Harris in the movie, he's voluntarily bankrupting himself to have one item of great value, leaving you to wonder, how is this man going to eat or clothe himself or pay the rent? Now, it's important as we're looking at parables, Jesus isn't being literal as he tells us these stories. The parables are fictional stories, sometimes exaggerated and even, even absurd, but they are told this way to illustrate a single point to help us understand a single principle. So we see right here that we know this from our own experience. All of us are willing to deny ourselves of something in order to have something we want or we need more. You deny yourself calories because you want a slimmer waistline. 
You eat out less to save up for your family vacation. You put off buying that car because your kid needs braces. You sell off something valuable to buy that engagement ring. Or if you're a nerd like me, you agree with the philosophy of Erasmus when he said, when I get a little money, I buy books. And if anything is left, then I buy food and clothes. See, we all do without to have more of something that we love. In fact, what we sacrifice for reveals what we value, what we adore. And that's precisely Jesus' point here. Following him will often look like poverty and denial. Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Matthew 10, 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Indeed, as Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, the entry point into his kingdom would be poverty, grief, humility, hunger, thirst, persecution. Friends, that does not sound all that enticing. And yet Jesus says, this is for your flourishing, which just sounds crazy because outside of the kingdom, these things feel like burdens. They sound like foolishness for those who do not have the eyes to see. Oh, but not for those who do have the eyes to see, who've experienced firsthand the glories of this path into the kingdom. Indeed, listen to what the Apostle Paul says about his journey to Christ. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Now, that's a nice little civilized, sanitized translation of that word there. The literal translation would be excrement, dung, poop. That's what he's saying. I count all things as poop in order that I may gain Christ. Indeed, even as Jesus calls us to take up our cross and to follow him, he tells us, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, listen, We'll find it. He even goes so far as to promise to his disciples in Matthew 19 this. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. My friend, whatever you lose to follow Jesus pales in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing him. 
And that's the picture that we get here of the kingdom that we get with the pearl. Even if we must lose everything else in life, relationships, financial security, our reputation, our freedom, our lives, Jesus is telling us it will be worth it. Because, as singer-songwriter Andrew Peterson puts it, when it comes to the love of Jesus, when it's all you have, it's all you'll ever need. Because whatever you might lose in the present and in the end, friend, you get Jesus. And listen, there is nothing greater than knowing him. Because if you have him, you have everything. But without him, you have nothing. See, what looks like denial to the world is really the pathway to delight. God isn't calling you to poverty because he wants you to be miserable. No, he's just weaning you off of what is ultimately going to make you miserable so that you can know true flourishing, so that you can experience true happiness. And listen to me, there is no happiness outside of him. See, with the two treasure parables, Jesus is inviting us to experience the greatest joy in the universe, a reconciled relationship with him, a sacred promise that in him we will know every blessing, that we will lack no good thing. But just in case that wasn't enough to convince us to leave our lesser loves behind to know a greater love, he closes out this section of Matthew with a warning and a final parable. It's called the parable of the nets. Look at Matthew 13, 47. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We see one last thing this morning in these parables. It's this. The kingdom brings life for all who believe, but destruction for all who do not. This parable here is reminiscent of the parable of the weeds we saw a few weeks ago, reminding us that in the present, both the righteous and the unrighteous will continue to exist side by side. And this isn't because God is turning a blind eye to sin. No, it's because God in his patience is giving time for all to repent. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But it's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Indeed, more than being patient and giving you time to change, God himself entered into creation to make it possible for you to change. See, left to yourself, you would never even want to change. So if there's even a small part of you this morning that wants to change, listen, that is a work of the Holy Spirit going on within you. So do not resist it, because in our own power, we would never want him. Even though he's the treasure of heaven, even though he's the greatest thing in the universe, holy and righteous, yet merciful and loving, we would reject him every single time. Because in our blindness, we would choose rubbish over riches, and in the words of C.S. Lewis, mud pies over a holiday at sea. Because we're sinners by nature. We were created perfect, but corrupted by the sin of our ancient father and mother, Adam and Eve. And the wage for that sin was death. Not just 
physical death, but spiritual death, eternal separation from God, whose image we were created to bear. See, we're all the bad fish in this parable. We all deserve to be thrown away. We're all evil and deserve to be cast into the fiery furnace. But God himself left his riches behind to redeem a hidden treasure. Though we had been marred and soiled by the stain of sin, Jesus came in pursuit of the invaluable to fully restore the imago Dei, the image of God in us. Indeed, Christ himself, the eternal and exact image of God, took on human flesh to fulfill our destiny, to perfectly reflect God's glory throughout the cosmos. See, unlike Adam, Jesus succeeded completely, never falling short of God's glory, not even once. Once. And because of this, he was able to do what Adam had, he was able to undo what Adam had done. See, the sinless Son of God became sin for us. He took the penalty for sin for us. He died in our place. Listen, the treasure of heaven sacrificed to unearth the hidden treasure in every nation, adopting sons and daughters from every corner of the earth and redeeming us from the domain of of darkness into his marvelous light. Friends, that's something to get excited about this morning. That's good news this morning. This can be your story. All you have to do is believe, not just with your head, but with your life. Because if your eyes have seen the treasure of Jesus, how can you not abandon everything else for the glory of knowing him? How can you go back to that sin like a dog returns to its vomit when the king of glory has offered you heaven and earth and everything in between? How can you continue to numb your pain with cheap and fleeting thrills when he has promised you true and lasting comfort and eternal satisfaction? How could you keep seething in bitterness when he provides mercy and has reconciled you to the Father? How can you settle for the merely created when you have been given access to the very creator? Oh, my friend, do not miss the treasure. There is nothing greater. And he offers it to each and every one this morning, and it would be tragic if you missed it, not only because it was, it's what you were created for, but also because Jesus warns us with this last parable that those who do not receive the treasure not only miss out on his riches, but also spend eternity in torment where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And understand why that's the case. It's because if you reject the treasure, you have cut yourself off from the only source of goodness and truth and beauty and light. Leaving you in darkness, wretchedness, distortion, treachery. Listen, if you want the good life, you need to know the source of goodness. Because if you have him, you have every good thing. But if you don't have him, listen, there is nothing good left for you to have. 
because there is nothing good outside of him. That's why, in the end, there are only two paths. There's the path that leads to life, blessing, flourishing, and there's the path that leads to death, cursing, and destitution. Because one path leads you to God. One path leads you away from him. So choose life. Choose treasure. Choose pleasure. Because he is always greater than anything we must leave behind. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about our church, visit welfarechurch.org. Blessings.